And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I had a long scheduled sit-down yesterday with Joe Scarborough, the host of The Morning Joe program on MSNBC, former Republican representative from the state of Florida. The occasion for this was the uh, publication of his book, Saving Freedom, Truman, the Cold War, and the Fight for Western Civilization. But it turned out to be a really propitious time to sit down with Joe, given all the events going on in our country. Here's that conversation. Joe Scarborough, good to see you, brother. It's a difficult time uh, for people who love uh, who love democracy and believe in it. Tell me how you're feeling this morning, because we're meeting as your former colleagues are debating the impeachment resolution. I think it's a bit of a, uh, you know, my feelings are mixed. Obviously, I was horrified, like everybody else, at what happened uh, last week. Uh, couldn't believe that what I was seeing on television, but at the same time, uh, it, like so many other things in Donald Trump's America, it, it's shocking without being surprising. This is where the Republican Party has been going for four and a half years. I think Democrats would say it's probably where the Republican Party has been going for the past 40 years. I would take exception with that. But when you have a president who in 2016 said uh, in August of 2016 that if People didn't want Hillary Clinton to appoint federal judges. They could implement the Second Amendment solution, uh, telling people to shoot Hillary Clinton. When, and Republicans stood by Donald Trump. Republicans stood by Donald Trump when a Republican congressman beat up a reporter for asking a question about health care. And they stood by Donald Trump uh, when he was praising that. He, fascist language, when he used fascist language against women of color who were American citizens, members of Congress, telling them they needed to go back to where they came from. Uh, time and time again, you and I could both come up with a hundred ex- examples of where Donald Trump repeatedly said something that was horrific, acted like a fascist dictator, and Republican congressmen, Republican senators, and uh, Republican commentators uh, went along with him. You're well qualified as a as a former practitioner, as a former candidate as a politician, to explain why. Why do you think that uh, they've been so silent? Why did 147 members of the Republican caucus vote to overturn uh, the Electoral College? You know, I, I mean, maybe there are true believers among them. Most of them knew better. Uh, explain why. They're all cynical. They're, 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 they're cowards, and they're all cynical. They're no true believers. None of them. None of them believed that uh, federal courts got it wrong 62, 63, 64 times. They all understood that Rudy Giuliani would get press conferences uh, and make bizarre claims. Lynn Wood would, would make bizarre claims. They'd all make bizarre claims outside of court, but they never sign their name on any pleadings that alleged widespread fraud because they knew if they did it in a federal court that they'd be sanctioned and might even be disbarred. I, I hope some of them still will be disbarred. Um, but it was just complete cynicism, but also complete cowardice. I, I must say, I'm, I, you know, I, I say on my show all the time, I'm a Baptist. I'm a big believer in deathbed conversions. 
Uh, and I, I would rather have a Republican uh, converting at the 11th hour than not. At the same time, I'm a little irritated when I hear Ben Sass uh, trying to take the moral high ground when he kept his mouth shut uh, uh, mm-hmm. before uh, his primary uh, was over. Yes. And it, it, it happened time and time again. Uh, and what, see, Dave, what I didn't understand this, and you understand this because you're a practitioner. I've always said, you know, there were lanes. There's so many lanes. I, and there was always that lane for somebody to stand up and be the anti-Trump in the Republican Party, to speak out against the insanity, to sound more like, you know, Russell Kirk and uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher than Benito Mussolini or Adolf Hitler. But no Republican chose to take that track. I think I think Liz Cheney. Uh, has belatedly decided to take that track in 2020, whether you're talking about COVID or whether you're talking about um, uh, the stealing of the election. Uh, But she's really one of the first, other than Mitt Romney, to do that. And it's obviously disappointing, especially since this should be so easy to do. And I know I went after Newt Gingrich when he was Speaker of the House and was the most powerful Washington, most powerful Republican in Washington, D.C. You know what happened to me, David? I got, you know, I got elected with 80 percent in the Republican primary because I went around and I held 100 town hall meetings and I explained why we needed to remove Newt Gingrich as Speaker of the House. And people said, "Okay, I get it. Well, you know, we've seen, though, uh, examples of people who weren't as fortunate, Sanford uh, down in South Carolina, Corker, Flake, people who were basically driven out of the Republican Party. I mean, Lindsey Graham did a 180. Uh, and it was very clear why he did the 180, you know, because he thought he was going to lose a primary and he probably would have because he called Trump uh, what Trump was. Yeah. And then, you know, he he, you know, I think appropriately said this is where I get off uh, on the night of the uh, uh, of the vote on the Electoral College. But, you know, he got off after t- taking a good long ride on the Trump train there. Um, and I think the message to Republicans was your careers will be over if you do if, if you stray. And that 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 fear of the base, if not Trump, seems to still be lingering. Well, you either control the base or your base controls you. I mean, I, I and, and I was the first Republican elected in my district uh, since Reconstruction. It was a very conservative district, though, and I held a lot of town hall meetings. I did a lot of things that, you know, that even my mother, I remember when I took the lead renaming the Justice Department after Bobby Kennedy. My mother was quoted in the newspaper saying, well, I must have done something to Joey when he was young and he's trying to get back at me now. But (laughs) I could take unpopular decisions. I was I was a, a champion for for banning offshore oil drilling in the Gulf Coast. I did it. I went and explained it to my people. And, and you know, David, I've always had a saying in politics, nobody stops you when you're going 90 miles an hour. And so you talk about Mark Sanford, you talk about, uh, you talk about Jeff Flake, you talk about all these other people. And yes, I mean, they're all friends of mine. But you know what? Uh, I remember when I went after the NRA uh, the Monday after Newtown. And I never write anything down. Before I before I go on Morning Joe, but I said, okay, I'm going after the NRA. I better get this right. That morning, I decided I needed to write something down. I needed to read it, and it needed to be thought out, especially after Newtown. And Mika said to me, she said, "You're going halfway. 
If you're going after the NRA, you have to go after the NRA. And it was a great point. And I think that's something I, I wish, you know, I, I, I wish that, uh, you know, Jeff Flake and some of these other Republicans, Mark Sanford, a friend of mine, you know, I, I, if you're going to go after Trump, you got to go after Trump. You got to go 90 miles an hour and then you need to go back to your base and explain why you're doing it. And nobody ever seemed willing to do that. Uh, you have to be all in. And I, they, they were intimidated by Donald Trump and his tweets. It's uh, well, and his uh, effect on the base. You know, uh, look at, uh, at Governor Kemp down in Georgia. I think his approval rating dropped 40 points or something uh, in the five weeks after uh, Trump went after him. And, you know, uh, people, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're they're, they're Look, I know this world as well. Folks, folks notice that stuff. But um, you mentioned Liz Cheney. What do you think happens now? Um, there, there's going to be a vote. She's obviously staked out a different place. Uh, and my guess is there's a pretty strong sort of pro-Trump base in her district. Will she be that person you're talking about? You think she survives with uh, impunity? Um, uh, politically, and it, could she forge a different, uh, a different base within the House uh, of Republicans? Who you know, because Kevin McCarthy has been pretty docile mm -hmm. uh, in response to Trump. He's one of the people who has uh, been uh, uh, supine in the face of uh, of Trump. Uh, including on on this issue, so what what happens now in the Republican Party? Yeah, well, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for Liz Cheney. She's doing the right thing, and I'm glad she's doing the right thing. I think for the reasons you stated, uh, she's going to have to be very aggressive, and she's going to have to state her case in in Wyoming. And she may survive only because we still don't know uh, how bad it was inside the Capitol. It's a crime scene. They're going through it. I just saw some video before I came on here that was absolutely horrifying. Uh, people planning, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to 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 team up together and go and uh, cause real havoc, and obviously hang the vice president of the United States. And you know, another guy talking about assassinating uh, Nancy Pelosi. I suspect there will be a cascading of of, of one negative story after another. Uh, against Donald Trump over the next couple of years. I suspect that he's going to be indicted uh, in New York City or New York State. Uh, and so she may be able to survive because of that. But I think the Republican Party as it is, I, I do think um, it just it, it may be a bad analogy, but they're sort of the Whigs of our time. I don't think there's there's any way that this party survives as a national party. Um, it's not a birth cry. It's a death rattle of white nationalism, people uh, angry inside the party because, you know, it's not Ronald Reagan's America. Seventy five percent of Americans aren't white anymore. Uh, and white people are going to be a minority in, in the coming decades. And I think I think uh, that the Republicans have decided to be the, the party of of 1956 instead of 2020. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, first of all, before we get to that, uh, you, you mentioned the scenes you saw and how, how they horrified you. You walked those walk, every every inch of that place you mm -hmm. walked. 
Um, you sat in that chamber uh, for uh, close to eight right. years. You, you know, you, how did you how did you process that as someone who sat in those chairs, who walked the Capitol? I mean, it, it, you had a different perspective. Yeah, and I'm 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 a Republican. I'm not a Republican. I'm a conservative. I you know I, I believe in the Castle Doctrine. <laughs> Don't walk into my house at night. It doesn't end well for you. So I really I I had such a close affinity for the House of Representatives for the United States Congress. I really do see it as a people's house. I really do see that as the center of democracy, not just in America but the world. And I was very angry. Uh, very angry by what I saw. And I was also very angry that I speak. Speaking of docile, I thought I was also very angry how some of the Capitol Hill police responded. I understand mm-hmm. there were others obviously tragically lost their lives and there are others that were doing the best they could do. There were some real heroes there. But I, 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 yeah. I, I was angry that the Capitol Hill police were as ill prepared as they were. Uh, I was angry that that we had white people going up the steps of the United States Capitol and allowed to just go straight in when if it had been black people, they would have been shot in the face uh, trying to rush through those doors. If it had been Muslims, they would have been sniped from the top of the buildings. Uh, it was just it was deeply offensive to me. And I was angry. And I, you know, we had Colin Powell on the show and ended up, you know, I was saying, staring at the TV, what Colin Powell was saying, where is everybody? Where are other law mm-hmm. enforcement officers? Why is this allowed to happen? And you you can't help but but think, uh, and I don't reduce everything to race, uh, but in this case, I'm reducing this to race. If if, if, if you compare uh, the, the scenes around the Capitol and the Lincoln Memorial uh, during the Black Lives Matter marches and compare with what happened last week, uh, it's it's a was a pretty disgraceful display by law enforcement. I don't understand why they weren't prepared, and I don't understand why they didn't push those people back aggressively. Yeah, well, there's also the question of not not just why they were uh, ill prepared, but what why they weren't deployed in greater numbers, uh, and why it took so long to get. And I'm I'm wondering if you think that there is any anything more nefarious than just um, Innocent mistakes. I mean, was it were, were signals sent to to stand back to treat this crowd differently? Uh, I mean, is that is is Donald Trump capable of that? And are there people who would uh, take cues from him on that? I think just just like Republican congressmen who, who had fear uh, were fearful of Donald Trump. I think some people in law enforcement were were likely also fearful of putting too much uh, too much strength behind. Uh, security against Donald Trump supporters, who the president of the United States had called to Washington, D.C. I also think we saw in some of the videos a problem that we're going to have to confront. It's something that Germany's had to confront over the past several years, the fact that they're neo-Nazis that are rising up in the security forces of Germany again. This is a real concern for Merkel's government. It's something that I think we're, we have to be concerned about uh, in our armed forces. I'm very proud of General Milley. I'm very proud of how uh, the leaders of the United States military have, have responded over uh, the well since June the second uh, of of this year, uh, and have have told uh, people in uniform time and again, uh, you are not to choose sides politically. We are here to. 
uphold the Constitution of the United States. But I do think that there's a, a growing cultural problem, uh, possibly inside the military, possibly inside law enforcement, and it needs to be rooted out. And this is a good time to do it. This is a good excuse to go in there and root out white supremacists uh, that are inside not only our military, but also some of our police uh, police organizations. You know, there's no question that Trump provoked uh, what happened, and not just with his words that day, but with, with his words going back months and years to create this sense that the whole system was rigged, that the, the deep state and Democrats were going to try and were, were stealing things uh, from mm-hmm. his base. And, and he has stoked this up. Oh, I want to ask you, because you've been here during a, a lot of this journey, you know, you look back at American politics, and I know you don't think this way, but, you know, something happened in the late 80s and early 90s. And I know you, you know, you were elected with the Newt Gingrich class right. in 94. But there was a change of tenor in our politics yeah. when Newt essentially de- deposed uh, the old line leaders of the House. Mm-hmm. And his basic theory was, we don't have opponents. We have enemies. <laughs> okay, right. we are we are we are in trench warfare with the left, right. and we're going to treat it that way. I mean, there 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 are roots of what we've seen with Trump in American history, going back generations and 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 centuries. Mm-hmm. But that was a line of demarcation. Talk to me about that and your thoughts going back as to you know what propelled our politics in the '90s that kind of culminated in this. And you can see a straight line to Sarah Palin, to the Tea Party, right. and now to this ar- armed insurrection on the steps of the Capitol. You know, I, I think there's obviously been uh, been a strain of this, this paranoid style of politics for quite yeah. some time. Um, I remember seeing a paperback around my, uh, my, my, my parents' house uh, in the '60s, none dare call it treason. Uh, uh, you know, I think I think the guy that wrote that book accused Lyndon Johnson of like murdering 11 people. Uh, you can fast forward that to Bill Clinton, uh, where you had the Clinton Chronicles and Jerry Falwell Sr. actually putting out videotapes accusing Bill Clinton of of murdering people uh, in his rise in Arkansas, his rise to the presidency. I remember in the late 1980s hearing. Congresswoman and some other people accused George H.W. Bush, a CIA director, of, of, of are working with the CIA to send crack into South Central L.A. and get black people addicted to crack. You can go through each president and George H.W. Bush in the late 19, George H.W. Bush in the late 1980s, uh, sending crack into South Central L.A. Bill Clinton, the murderer. George W. Bush, I remember seeing a poll in 2005 2006, something like 52% of Democrats in a Politico poll uh, thought he, it was 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, and then the conspiracy theories really started to go wild in 2009, obviously, when Barack Obama became president of the United States. I would have to, every day at, at like six, 6 o'clock, I think Glenn Beck was on, I think from 5 to 6 and at 6.01, I would have to deprogram my mom and my aunt every night. No, mom. No, mom. No, there's not going to be Sharia law in Pensacola next week. No, mom. No, aunt. No, no, aunt Carol. no, no. That, 
every single day. They would call me at 601 or 602. But just to explain to people that are a little bit younger how it's not completely new. When I first started running, people wouldn't spread these lies on Facebook or on Glenn Beck show. They would send around emails. And every morning I would get a different email from my mother. And it would be like, did you know of the 435 members of Congress, 388 have declared bankruptcy. 241 have committed sexual assault. 98 have been convicted of rape. You know, they, and you would get a different one of these every day. And I would have to call my mom and go, mom, quit sending those to me. I'm in Congress. And so there's <laughs> always been this paranoid style in American politics. And, and I, I, I hate to pinpoint, the, though I think some of your listeners might not be quite so reluctant, but uh, a man who has terminal cancer, I, I, I hate to pinpoint it uh, to any one moment, but if I had to pick one moment uh, where things changed, it would be the rise of Rush Limbaugh when mm-hmm. tens of millions of Americans uh, would start listening to Rush Limbaugh and listen, yeah, he he really did turn uh, politics into entertainment, uh, and he really did vilify the left. Uh, but what made it worse is you then had the people who copied Limbaugh, and so Hannity copied Limbaugh, and Hannity wasn't as talented behind the microphone as Limbaugh because I mean Limbaugh is an extraordinary broadcaster, mm-hmm. or else he wouldn't have been able to create a new form that he did, and so. It became more shrill. And then you have Mark Levin, who became more shrill. And then you had had this mushrooming effect. And, and so suddenly you had uh, hard right talk radio that I think really did have a substantial impact on American politics. And then you follow that up with Fox News in 1996. MSNBC started in 1996. But as we saw on talk radio, as well as Cable news, uh, the left, uh, the left, left leaning media didn't explode like right leaning media did. And and I, it did. It dramatically changed American politics. I think a lot of us sort of shrugged it off and laughed, you know, at Limbaugh and said, oh, he brings up some pretty good points. Oh, there's a pretty good talking point. I'll use that on the campaign trail. Here's where, you know, but but the years went by. And you just saw this mushrooming effect. And suddenly uh, your political opponents weren't wrong. Your political opponents were evil. Uh, and it, it took it again. It took an especially nasty turn in 2009 when President Obama went into the White House. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Social media obviously has played a huge role in this, as well as we've seen in, in, in these last few days as, this, as the layers of this plot at the Capitol have been uh, un, un, uh, uh, you know, peeled. But you, you were the victim uh, of this uh, as well. And we should, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, a young, uh, a young woman, tragically, an aide of yours died in your office. You weren't mm-hmm. there. She had uh, some sort of heart incident, right. fainted and hit her head and died. And that was a portrait. And ultimately, Donald Trump gave credence to it. That uh, right. metastasized into a rumor that somehow you were culpable or responsible 
And, you know, as you and I have discussed, once these things metastasize, they live online. And you look up Joe Scarborough, and that story is there, false Mm -hmm. and malicious as it is. You know, what's it like to be on the receiving end of that? Well, it's interesting. Um, I I can tell you that that nobody's hands are clean because when it was first used against me, it was used by Democrats who were angry because I participated in the Florida recount process as far as, you know, I ran around for 38 days and Mm -hmm. would go on TV for uh, George W. Bush. For George W. Bush. Um, And so, so it was, I was getting it from these extreme left wing sites on, on the internet but then when they wanted me to run against Catherine Harris in 2006, then it was Catherine Harris and the Republicans who started uh, trotting, trotting that out and trying to use it against me. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't a victim. I mean, Donald Trump accused me of murder 12 times. But, you know, I wasn't a victim in that. Uh, but who's counting, right? Yeah, but who's counting? Exactly. If, if you're accused by the president of the United States a dozen times, of, of murder, and he's trying to get people to actually bring charges against you. Yeah, who's counting? But the 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 real victim there was the the young lady, her husband, who uh, he and I have talked through the years, and you know we've sort of been each other's counselors on, on walking through this. But he suffered. He hasn't been able to move on. He he wants to be able to bury his wife. And and bury these bad memories and move on. And the family, uh, the mom and dad are still alive. And so it's just like, you know, they it's just like Seth Rich's parents. I think TJ called Seth Rich's parents and they commiserated about all of this. And I will say that that in a strange way, Donald Trump being that hateful and that vicious towards uh, the Klesudis family. I think actually gave them an opportunity for the first time to speak out uh, and 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 clear the air. And uh, but but again, that's it's the world we live in. But what really made me angry was the fact that Twitter wouldn't take it down. Facebook wouldn't take it down. They all knew it was it was slanderous. They all knew that that Donald Trump was lying about a woman who had been dead for 19 years, suggesting that she had an affair, got pregnant, and then was killed in part of some cover-up. And so, you know, and Trump referred to her as my girlfriend uh, and, and suggested that something was amiss. And so the fact that Facebook and Twitter and all these social media sites continued to publish that, and they are publishers, really outrageous. So, you know, I will say the one thing I agree with Donald Trump after four years in the White House is that Section 230, which I voted for in the Telecom mm-hmm. Reform Bill in 96, is outrageous. The fact that the fa- immunity, yeah. yeah, the immunity, the fact that Facebook and Twitter, uh, they have the immunity against lawsuits that they have when they're in t- when they make billions of dollars uh, off of uh, what third party people put on their sites is really outrageous. I agree. You know, someone suggested to me the other day that maybe they should twin up 230 and the immunity that gun manufacturers have and put it in one bill and put it on the floor. I like that. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty clever idea. You know, the interesting thing, Joe, about your discussion of Trump is that you were friends with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think the first time I met Donald Trump, Mika was the one who introduced me uh, to him. 
Mm-hmm. And I and as you know, you guys were so fantastic. We did this uh, slash the stash thing on your right. show back in the day after uh, after the 2012 election, where I shaved my mustache off for to raise money for my wife's uh, epilepsy uh, research foundation mm-hmm. cure, and and we uh, we conspired on the air to embarrass Trump into donating a hundred thousand dollars to it, which he did, and I yeah. will appreciate that, and I appreciate that. And, you know, up until 2016 and into 2017, you guys were friendly with him. Was he a different person then or were there things that you didn't see? You know, it's a good question. We um, and, and you're right. And this is the thing. This is this is the part of this is the Donald Trump that we knew. Like we were one hundred thousand dollars short with our goal uh, that we'd said that we were going to help you guys in fundraising. And so we just did what I said, well, let's call Donald. He'll write a $100,000 check. And as you and I know, a lot of billionaires, and I doubt he's a billionaire, but a lot of billionaires, you you, you know, try to get $25 from them. And if their name's not all over it, they're not going to give you the money. But he would, uh, when we had charity events and we would try to get money, um, we could always get money from him. He was always there as far as helping other people, too. He helped. Uh, he, it's it's hard to believe. I, it's just hard to believe. But he helped uh, Mika New, an immigrant family that was down on their luck seven, eight years ago. A guy was selling vegetables under an overpass, I think, in New Jersey. Mika heard about it and, and you know, tried to get the guy a job. Finally, she called Donald and said, hey, this guy, he's a hard worker, his family, he's got three kids. Long story short, that that guy, like seven, eight years ago, got a job as a working in the back at one of Trump's properties in New York City. And now he's a doorman. He's got. So that was a part of him that we knew. We also knew at the same time there was the other side of him. He was not a nice guy in many ways. He was not a guy you wanted to go into business with. He was not a nice guy. Uh, that to work for, but we knew him. Um, I, I, and we, I think we made the same mistake that, and I, people hate when you draw this analogy. I just, I've got to draw it. I think we made the same mistake uh, that people made during Hitler's rise. We kind of thought he was the class clown of New York City. We thought he was a joke, but at the same time, I think you saw what I saw. I thought he was going to poke the establishment. I thought he was, you know, I never loved the Republican establishment, as you know. I never really loved the Democratic establishment. I thought he might shake some things up, but I never really thought the guy was going to win. Our problem with him came, a real problem with him came, obviously, um, early on uh, with with the birtherism, which we always talk to him about. Uh, and And what did he say when you talked to him about it? You know, we we kept telling him if he was going to run, he had to drop it. And he would always sort of say, well, you know, I haven't really done this. And it's not me. It's other people. You know, Donald, it's you. And then then he would say, well, I'm not really saying he wasn't born in America. And we go, yes, you are. You know, and and if you when when we when we pushed him early on, I think it was in 2015, I said, it's it's disgusting and you you know what you're doing. And he said, well, what I'm really doing is is I'm trying to get him to prove uh, that that he 
something about he he got into Harvard or something or whatever by saying that he was born in Kenya or something like that. It was one of these convoluted things. And and Meek and I just said, well, it's it's disgusting and you really need to get it behind you. And I think we talked to him on the day that he had some 60 minutes interview with Pelly. And I remember saying to him, I said, I said, this is, you know, it's disgusting. You got, you've got to say he was born in America. You got to say he's a Christian. Like, stop, stop dog whistling. Um, but when things get especially ugly, it was in December of 2015, um, when he, after Paris, he talked about the Muslim registry. And that's when I asked, is this what it was like in Nazi Germany in 2015? And so we had very rough ride. I supported uh, Jeb. Uh, and so throughout early 2016, he was tweeting ugly things about us and saying he was going to reveal the truth about Joe and Mika, Joe and his crazy longtime girlfriend. Uh, so throughout most of 2016, it was tough. After he got elected, um, we went in to talk to him because, you know, Dr. Brzezinski and Mika's dad, yeah. Michael Hayden and Bob Gates and other people would say it was, hey, Rudy Giuliani can't be secretary of state. You used to have influence with this guy. If you have any influence with him, you need to talk to him. So we talked to him a good bit during the um, during that transition time. And and our two goals were simple. And I know this guy probably piss off journalists, but, you, you know, we did what we did. Uh, and our two goals were, one, to stop Rudy Giuliani from being Secretary of State, and two, to stop Chris Kobach from being Department of Homeland Security. And uh, we hammered on him nonstop. We, we kept suggesting more establishment-type figures. Uh, but, you know, we, Meek and I were sitting watching in her apartment in, in Washington the inauguration, and about two minutes into it, we were like, yeah, this is just this is going to be ugly. And sure enough, it, it was ugly. We... I think he called me up screaming uh, about a week or two in when um, when his person uh, went on and said the president's authority shall not be questioned. And uh, that was pretty much uh, the end of that. I actually thought, though, David, I will be honest, I got to say this. I I actually thought he was so vain that he would work with Nancy Pelosi and he would work with Chuck Schumer and he would try to be seen as this renegade outsider that could get things done in Washington, D.C. I did think there was that hope. I, you know, I didn't vote for him. I would never vote for him. I told everybody I could never vote for him uh, starting back in December 2015. But I was hopeful. Uh, I, I thought it might turn out pretty badly, but I never, I never, ever expected it to turn out this badly. In speaking about Trump, do you have you, he he was a frequent guest on your on mm-hmm. your show? I mm-hmm. mean, he was a ubiquitous presence on television. Right. Do you regret giving him the platform you gave him? <laughs> you know, I've been asked that question uh, since I've been going on the book tour. I said, "Well, what what do you think about the guy that ran the radio show Germany Today in 1932? Did he regret having Hitler on?" <laughs> I mean, obviously, there wasn't a Germany Today. But of course, if I knew then what I know now, uh, I, I wouldn't want to do it. I, I, I do have a regret, which I'm going to get to. It, it's not so much about having Donald Trump on the show as much as we did. And we had him on a lot in 2015 uh, and into early early 2016. Uh, 
But we also, we invited everybody else on. And, and we would have Trump on, and then we would say, if you were running for president of the United States, pick up the phone and call us. Uh, we'd love to have you on. We tried to get Jeb to do it. We tried to get Hillary to do it. She finally did it one time before the Iowa caucuses. Um, and so that was an open invitation. And it was just Trump who always kept showing up at the door. Uh, and uh, I, had, I had more problem with primetime networks running Donald Trump's speeches and not other other candidate speeches. Uh, but but I think my my biggest regret had to do with how much we and everybody else did, too, but how much we focused on Hillary Clinton's emails, which at the time seemed like a big deal. The Clinton Foundation at the time, it seemed like a big deal. You take that uh, and, and compare that to what we've been through over the past four years. And it really does make me scratch my head and go, OK, wait a second. Why did we focus on that as much as we did. Uh, but as far as Trump goes, uh, we we had an open invitation. And I think the lesson there is, Donald Trump. If you get an invitation, take it. If you get an invitation, I know Lindsey Graham took it a couple of times, so it's not fair to say that nobody uh, would do it. But if you got the invitation, take it. And Trump always took it. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You, uh, you've written this book called Saving Freedom, Truman, the Cold War, and the Fight for Western Civilization. And, uh, you know, you, you said something earlier that is clear from your life and career you know you you come from a working class background um you and you have a populist sensibility i should have by the way i should have started off with roll tide uh to congratulate you on yet another championship of your alma mater the university of alabama Uh, but um tell me what uh, tell me uh first of all tell me about I want to get to Truman in a second, but I, there's a straight, there's a line here. It may take a, a while to get there, but tell me a little bit about yourself, your family, and how you were drawn to politics, why you were drawn to politics. Tell me what framed who you are. We were, uh, we were, I was born in the suburbs of Atlanta in 1963, sort of the wonder years, and it was, that was the type of neighborhood that I grew up in, like, like millions of Americans. My, um, it's interesting, my dad was a Republican, uh, loved Nixon. Uh, my mom and her family were Democrats. She never told my dad, but admitted to us later that she voted for <laughs> JFK. Um, my grandmom, who was a huge influence on me, uh, was a lifelong Democrat, had a picture of FDR up. Uh, until the day she died at the age of 93 uh, in her in her living room. And they were in Dalton, Georgia. Uh, my mom was born in 1932, and they were born in the depths of the Great Depression. And my mom said, you know, Roosevelt was a king. We would have never survived without FDR. We would have never survived without the New Deal. Um, but, but my family, you know, it was some of my earliest memories were, you know, watching TV with my parents, watching Walter Cronkite when I was five, six, seven, and 68, 69, 70, 71. And it was chaotic. It was very frightening. 
And I saw the world through the eyes of my mom and dad. They were scared as hell. Uh, the world that they knew had completely collapsed. And um, they, they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand how the world was changing. They didn't understand why people were burning down cities. They didn't understand, you know, these uh, rich uh, elite kids that, that went to elite colleges uh, taking over you know, president's offices at Columbia. I mean, you know, they were they were middle class. They had worked their mm-hmm. way into the middle class and they 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 didn't understand any of it. Kids burning, you know, their draft cards. Mm-hmm. And so I saw the world through their eyes and and I I was a conservative, no doubt. I, I grew up conservative in a conservative household. I will say though I was inspired to get into politics. Uh, when I read Arthur Schlesinger's um, uh, biography of Bobby Kennedy, and sp- specifically, and a lot of people talk about it, I'll, you know, I've talked about it all the time, so it's not original, but specifically what Bobby did uh, the evening of uh, April 4th, mm-hmm. 1968, Indianapolis. Went, went into Indianapolis, the cops told him not to go in there, they said, it's too dangerous, we can't follow you in, and Bobby Kennedy went in. Anyway, and, uh, you know, Schlesinger wrote about that night, how something like 100, 120 cities burned that night. Indianapolis went to sleep in peace. And uh, it was just an inspiring story. And and so um, I've it, it's yeah, politically my Republican colleagues always saw me as sort of a, an odd guy. I didn't. Then really, I think because uh, because I was a conservative slash libertarian populist, but my dream always was figuring out a way uh, to connect to both working class whites and working class blacks. And then the reason why, which is, was in fact what Bob, that was, that was Bobby Kennedy. I was going mean, to say was his I was, magic. Yeah, I was oh. going to say that was the Bobby that was the Bobby Kennedy coalition. And there's a, a beautiful tragic ending of a book where they're talking about Bobby's train going from New York down to Washington and talking about black people saluting the train on one yeah. side of the tracks, white people saluting on the other side of the track. With his and coffin, his, yeah. Yeah, with his yeah. coffin on there. And as the train went past, they turned their backs, walked back to their neighborhoods, and the and there's not been a party uh, or a political force that's been able to bring those people back together again. So, um, you know, so, so that is, has always been, uh, one of the reasons I got into politics, um, because I, I do think, um, I, I, I just, I, I do think that there's a longing for, for, from Americans to, uh, to, to get leaders that actually have the courage to bend history like Bobby Kennedy did, uh, and I understand it's it's frustrating. I, I mean, I could talk to you for five hours uh, nonstop about how frustrating it was for you and for President Obama. And uh, uh, but it's you know we've got to we've got to figure out a way uh, to to keep fighting and to keep pushing at it because um, we have no choice. It is interesting to hear you talk about this because fifty years later, when you look at the divisions in our country, it is still. They, they are still very class, they're race-based, but they're class-based as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, the Democratic Party, your audience on Morning Joe, um, you know, is a highly educated, uh, upscale audience. 
progressive uh, audience, generally progressive audience. Mm-hmm. Um, Democratic Party, they, it reflects very much the, the, what the Democratic Party is now. And, you know, the Democratic Party is a dominant party in metropolitan areas, do- dominant party among college-educated voters. Um, but uh, that ability to reach into working-class communities across the country uh, the 80% of counties where Trump rolled up his numbers uh, has been lost. And I, I think that the thing about Bobby Kennedy was uh, he was a wealthy guy, uh, but he had a real sensibility for uh, people who work with their hands, people who work with their backs, for the dignity of people. Um, you know, my feeling is for the Democratic Party, um, if the Democratic Party is going to have a, a, a a chance to build a real governing coalition, not a narrow one, but a broad one, they have to recoup some of that. You can't be an elite party moralizing uh, to people. Uh, you also have to hear and listen to them and about their experiences and so on. So Bobby Kennedy, to me, is, as I guess to you, is still mm-hmm. an exemplar. And this is what is so confusing to people that don't follow politics closely. And I always try to explain to audiences when they look at the last election and think that that's where America is going to be for the next 50 years. I've always said the same people that voted for Ronald Reagan twice, voted for Bill Clinton twice, voted for George W. Bush twice, voted for Barack Obama twice, and now voted for Donald Trump once. The thing that the that, that Bobby Kennedy's family always had trouble grasping, and I remember Joe, the son, and uh, Ethel at different times took me aside separately, I think probably three or four years apart. And they knew, you know, I think they saw me as this, I don't know, maybe this working class guy. Uh, but they took me aside separately and said, we, we've never been able to figure out why did people who supported Bobby, why did a lot of them go to George Wallace afterwards? I, I didn't know the answer. I, other than you said Bobby Kennedy connected to people that worked with their hands and he, you know, it, it's in the gut, you know, it's I think when I would walk in, when I would walk into rooms uh, in debates and I was debating uh, a Republican who was a real country club Republican, I knew the second I walked into the room, whether I had the room or not. And I knew it because Again, people feel politics in their gut. They they connect on a very gut level. And I think that is the thing the Democratic Party has lost. And I am hopeful, and let me be blunt, it's not about Democrats, but it's about making sure that Donald Trump's Republican Party loses every election every two years for the rest of my life, because I do think American democracy rides on that. I'm hopeful that the Democratic Party uh, is open to expanding their coalition and some People like myself, I'm not saying I'm going to do it anytime soon, but uh, people in the suburbs of Atlanta and people uh, in, in, in other areas that were Republicans their entire life that have left that party, the Democratic Party needs to absorb them. They need to grow their coalition and they need to be able to, to beat the Republicans, not every four years, but beat them every two years and start winning some of these Senate seats back. One of the things that Bobby Kennedy uh where, where you and he may have had some disagreement, although he was an iconoclast. He had, you know, he was skeptical of uh, 
of of welfare programs and mm-hmm. um, had concerns about them. And but he was he was ultimately someone who he who believed in the power of government to make a difference. And you you know when you came to Congress, the mantra was small government, right? Lower taxes and and, and so on. I saw lately that that you've been advocating for more generous uh, assistance for people who have been uh, badly damaged by this pandemic. Um, I mean, tell me what your view of the role of government is now, because um, I remember Joe sitting on. Remember the the tiff we had. I hope not a tiff, but the exchange we had on a Meet the Press platform once during the Ebola crisis and Tom Frieden, the, uh, the director of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, CDC, said, we're not going to have a major outbreak here. And Chuck Todd turned to you first after Frieden spoke and said, you don't believe him, do you? And you said, no, I think the government's not telling us the truth about this. I think mm-hmm. isn't that kind of thing, isn't that sort of consistent with what we've seen, which is this fu- fundamental distrust of government? And you know, yeah. So, so, so I, I, I'm smiling. First of all, I don't remember that moment, but I do remember a moment I had with you at a Christmas party. Can I swear on this? This can I? Can I? Can I swear? This is a podcast, not? brother. Do it. Knock yourself out. And I don't know if you remember this moment, but I was very much against building up forces in Afghanistan. And I remember President Obama. You guys were trying to balance things. And you ended up, I can't remember the specifics of it, but I think I called you and I'd said, don't trust the generals. You can't trust whatever you give them. It's not going to be enough. And I remember some generals started leaking and going after President Obama. I remember being at a Christmas party (laughs) and saying to you, David, what did I tell you? The generals are going to fuck you every time. You can never give them enough. You can never give them enough because you're a Democrat and they can get away with it. So so my skepticism towards government runs from people I respect in the CDC to people I respect in the Pentagon. I don't say that. I don't. I, and I don't you know, obviously I have a great love for the United States military and have a great, great love for a lot of. But I worked on the Armed Services Committee for years. And as you know, much better than I do, it's a very political place. So. Am I skeptical that at times that people are cynical in Washington, D.C.? I am. But what I, what I try to explain to conservatives that have sort of taken this approach that all government is bad is you can have this pyramid. I mean, my goal is if something can be handled on the local level, handle it on the local level. If it can't, then try to get it handled on the state level. And if it can't, then it needs to be handled on the federal level. Obviously, if you're talking about the environment, obviously, if you're talking about uh, you know, a lot of other issues, the local and state governments can't handle that. Uh, and so um, so that's always been my view of of government, the way government should be. But I am I am a completely different universe than my uh uh, my former Republican friends who I think are extremists. If you try to change, you know, let's say you try to move up the top marginal tax income tax rate by two percentage points, they'll call you a socialist. Uh, and so, so they, they take that in an extreme sort of way. 
I will tell you one area where um, I've had to change, uh, and and that's during COVID. That's that has had to do with benefits. Like I, I am, I I got into Congress because I I wanted a balanced budget because I wanted the federal debt to be driven down. We are in the equivalent of World War II right now, and so. You know, if we're talking about the debt, the federal debt going up more and giving people $2,000, I think it's something that we need to do for two reasons. One, to help those people, but two, to help small businesses. I think, I think giving uh, expansive benefits right now actually is, is the best way to help people and the best way to keep small businesses alive until this pandemic ends. Yeah. I think uh, it's also the most important thing for the economy itself because the problem the economy has is just demand, and uh, mm-hmm. you're not going to have demand if if people are out of work if they if they lose their businesses. Yeah, and, and can I say one other thing on, on this front? And we've had this week we've had uh, Kurt Anderson on uh, and having him on every day this week for evil geniuses, and and for a reason uh, because as a small government conservative that always talked about the invisible hand. I've seen what the invisible hand has done, even during COVID, where you've had the top four to what top forty families in America uh, pocketing billions and billions yeah. and billions of dollars, while you know the bottom fifty percent, the bottom seventy percent uh, are losing money. It's just the inequities have have uh, have risen to such a level that uh, it, it's a threat to American capitalism. Yeah, no, I agree, I, and democracy, frankly. Right. If and people democracy. don't feel if if people don't feel like they are, they count. If they don't feel like they're going to get a fair deal, uh, and that they're sharing in it, they they be you know they they become alienated, and we've seen it. So talk to me about Truman. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about Truman a lot lately because I I and and I saw somewhere you said the same thing. I, I'm wondering whether Biden uh, ends up a kind of Truman esque figure. Because he's another guy who comes from a different place, the kind of garden variety uh, uh, politician in Washington. He uh, at high levels. I mean, he's he he comes from a working class family. He he went to a state school. He uh, and he speaks in that language, uh, and he has those sensibilities. And I assume that's part of what attracted you to Truman. I know your book is about his the things he did in, in national security and foreign policy, NATO, the Marshall Plan, mm-hmm. the Truman Doctrine. But uh, you must have seen a little of yourself uh, and of other politicians who don't come from the establishment in Truman. Yeah, you, you look at Biden, who um, I always, I, I've always loved Joe, like I know you've loved Joe. Uh, but you know, in the past, he 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 could be hot-headed at times, and would carry around a chip on the shoulder. Everybody remembers 1987 when somebody made the mistake of asking about his education, and he flew off the handle and started talking about scholarships, and it didn't end well. I remember watching in the middle of this campaign an older, wiser Joe Biden uh, starting to get angry about. The fact that he had been asked about being the first guy who didn't have an Ivy League degree in 20 years or so. And I, and he got angry. And I looked, I said, you know, what actually works now. <laughs> it's, really, yeah. it's really good. It for absolutely him. did. I think that's one of the things that probably uh, made a difference for him because he could cross lines in a way other Democrats perhaps could not. 
uh, and people saw themselves in him mm-hmm. in a way that perhaps they didn't see uh, in in, uh, in in some of the others. So I, I agree with you. Um, uh, talk talk about Truman and uh, what inspired you to write this book. Well, well, so so Biden had that chip on his shoulder being a state school guy. Reagan went to Eureka College. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people remember Central that, Illinois. That famous moment when he was at Harvard and he was looking at the class, Harvard, Harvard uh, graduating class, and he said, "You know, sometimes I uh, I think back and and I just wonder what I might have accomplished if I had gone to a good school." And of course, he had to sell the president. LBJ went to Southwest Texas Teachers College, and Truman graduated from Spalding Commercial College. He, I just named uh, those last three guys, three of the most effective politicians uh, in, in in working the Senate and, and getting legislation passed. Truman, foreign policy, obviously LBJ just created a revolution in civil rights. Ronald Reagan, of course, uh, turned, uh, you know, basically had the, the counter revolution uh, from from the New Deal. But for for Truman, I, 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 I loved the fact that Harry Truman uh, while he may not have had a great education, he he understood the Senate. He understood how it worked. And the older I get, even though I'm a populist uh, at time, I have this populist uh, 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 edge to me, uh, I, I grow more and more resentful of people who want outsiders in Washington, D.C., people that don't know how Washington, D.C. works. I don't want outsiders. I want people who know how Washington, D.C. works. And that's something that Truman understood. Uh, He understood that he had to work with Arthur Vandenberg. He understood uh, that he had to work with Republicans. He understood that he had to have the best and brightest people around him. And he did with George Marshall. He did with 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 uh, uh, all of his, uh, you know, everybody that was surrounding him in the cabinet. Um, And so that appealed to me as well, that he knew how to get things done. Uh, and and I'm hopeful that Joe Biden uh, will uh, will also uh, because he was in the Senate for so long. Will 36 also, years. Yeah, 36 years. Also figure out how to get things done. And I think history's lining up for Biden uh, because, uh, you know, Barack Obama had to deal with a far more uh, divided Senate. We have you know, we're going to have two Democrats from Arizona two Democrats from Georgia. We got Susan Collins, a state in Maine where, you know, Biden won by nine points. We've got Mitt Romney. Uh, You've got a lot of people in the middle, seven, eight, nine, 10, that are going to want to get some legislation done. So I'm hopeful that that can get done. And I would, I, I, I would hope that Joe Biden would look to Harry Truman as an inspiration because uh, Truman you know, when Truman was passing the Truman Doctrine or the Marshall Plan, he had to do it with a Republican Congress that had been in the minority for 13, 14 years uh, before he went to him in 1947 trying to get that legislation passed. What about you, Joe? Uh, you, 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 you intimated earlier that the dream still lives, that you may go back into uh, public service. Um, is that something that you uh, seriously ponder? Is that something, do you, do you see a return to public life. You got a pretty good perch over there. Uh yeah. over at MSNBC and you got a big audience. Well I've got a yeah, there were several times I was uh thinking about running for the Senate. Uh and several times 
everybody I talked to said, why would you become the 99th ranking member in the United States <laughs> when you have the perch you have at Morning Joe? Uh, and it's a, it, it's a good question. And, and obviously, I decided not to, um, not to jump back in. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do. I've got to figure out, first of all, um, if there's a party for me. Uh, because mm-hmm. I know I'm never going to be a Republican again. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure if anybody would want me, any Democrats would want me in the Democratic Party. And I don't know what kind of future there would be for an independent. I just do know, though, that I wake up every morning understanding because this is what I love. This is what I do. I wake up every morning um, understanding that the future of American democracy rests on Donald Trump and Donald Trump's party and people who think like Donald Trump losing every single election. So I don't know exactly how to accomplish that, but that's if I do get back into politics, that's going to be the goal to make sure that Trumpism is 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 driven uh, off the playing field. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what was the what was the, the Khrushchev line about the ash heap of history? Put in the ash yeah. heap of history. Uh, so I don't know how to do that. I don't know where to do that. But I do think not only Donald Trump, but also the Republican senators like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio. The list goes on and on. People that sat back and uh, were were willing accomplices, useful idiots. Um, they 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 can't ever make it to the White House either. Well. I'll be interested to see what you do, brother. I'm an avid listener, even though I work over at another place. I I tune in to hear what you have to say. So it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you. And I, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.